and in the uh, nursery. So we're going to be doing that in the next couple of weeks. That's going to be taking place. And also, just one other quick announcement. I forgot to mention it earlier. Um, during the month of November, basically this is our first year. We're coming up on our first year of uh, broadcasting Graceful Truth on KFAX every week at 3.30 on Sundays. And basically it's just an avenue of our church to reach out to the Bay Area in a rather large way. But um, as we do that, that costs money, obviously. And so we want to ask you to be praying through the month of November what maybe the Lord would lay on your heart to support that ministry for the next year. And uh, that's how we want to basically uh, do this. And we, we take it by faith that, that the Word of God is going out and that it's falling on ears and that lives are being transformed. And so we just uh, want to encourage you to be praying about that. Well, I want to dismiss our children to their classes. And... Uh, And we'll be praying that you have a blessed time in your Sunday school classes this morning as well. And those of us that are here, let's turn our Bibles over to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. And I just want to pause and pray for our children and pray for our hearts as we open up God's Word. Father, we ask that this morning that you would move and you would work in and among our body here. Lord, we thank you for drawing new people here to our congregation, and we thank you for their willingness to uh, just show their support of what we're doing here. And Father, we know that that's just a a visible sign, and there's other ways that that's done in in so many different ways by people, and we thank you for their support as well. And and Lord, we pray this morning that you would uh, move and work in not only our hearts here, but also in the Sunday school, Lord, that you would open up these children's small hearts to your word, and Lord, that you would fill your teachers with your spirit, that they could communicate the word of God to their hearts in a way that is understandable to them. And Lord, we also pray this morning that you would begin to prepare our hearts even after the, the music and uh, for our communion time at the end of our service. But Lord, right now we ask that you would open our hearts to your word, that you would show us uh, what you would have for us to glean from it this morning. We pray that you would enable us through the Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you turn over to Matthew chapter 16 this morning, uh, the message is, I will build my church. Uh, when I entered the gospel ministry, I, uh, you might say, was kind of naive, <laughs> to say the least. I was a brand new believer, probably a couple years old in the Lord. And uh, as I began to go to church and observe what pastors did, the one thing I learned right up front was that it's the responsibility of a pastor to be positive, to be upbeat. Nobody wants to come to a church and hear a pastor whine about whatever and be in a bad mood. I mean, what would that do for you? That wouldn't do anything. Uh, so we have a responsibility to be not positive thinking. I'm not saying that, but just personality-wise, we have to have kind of an optimistic outlook on life. And for the most part, I want to communicate to you this morning that I've enjoyed the ministry, the pastoral work that God has called me to very much. And especially in this church, I've dearly loved this preaching ministry. But I can't stand here before you and tell you honestly that there haven't been those days, even those Sundays, those dark days, when maybe I was dealing with discouragement or 
Maybe I was pondering in my office what it would be like to be back at the DA's office and have some better, uh, maybe just, you know, the, the ability to, to see action on, on the front lines, you might say. Uh, I asked myself on those occasions when I've been discouraged or disgruntled or whatever, am I in the right place? Not just physically, but spiritually. Am, is this the right time? Am I on the right track? Do I even know what I'm doing as a pastor? Am I the right preacher for this church? And I'm sure discouragement, when it comes to you, it usually comes after a high point. <laughs> it comes after a victory, maybe in your own life, or in a ministry, or something like that. That's when discouragement hits us. I think of Elijah in the Old Testament, right after Mar- Mount Carmel, with all the, the blood and the fire, and, and the, the, the rain that God uh, laid down at his request. <clears throat> Tremendous victory over the pagan gods. But as you read that story, you realize that Jezebel made an appointment the first thing Monday morning. <laughs> and when I say I was kind of naive when I entered the ministry, what I mean is I was very surprised to find out that Jezebel was actually a church-going woman. <laughs> uh, you know, we think of Jezebel as somebody who's, whoa. And, and I found uh, over the years, there's been a few times in my almost 30 years of serving the Lord in full-time gospel ministry, um, that I didn't want to face those things. There's been times when, to be honest with you, I've come here on a Sunday morning and uh, got out of my car in the cool and darkness of the morning. And as I walked into my office, I actually said to myself, I don't want to be here today. I don't want to do this. And there's been a few times when the Jezebel or the the other individual in the Bible that harassed uh, the folks was Alexander the coppersmith. Um, you get discouraged sometimes when those times come. And I just want to share with you that when those times come, they're very far and few between with me. I'm kind of an internal optimist almost. I'm a realist, but I'm, I'm just that way. I'm very positive that way. Um, But in those dark days, five words basically refocused my heart on what God has called me to do. Five words. And those five words are in our text this morning. And these are words of promise. These are words of comfort. These are words that Christ spoke them first to Peter and the apostles. And you know what? In those dark hours when I was questioning maybe my calling, Uh, God has spoken to me, and he continues to do so over and over and over again. And those five words are the title of this message this morning, I will build my church. Uh, There have been times when those five words was really all I had. At least that's what I thought. And there are times when those five words really are all you need. I will build my church. Well, let's look at the text, and then we're going to delve into it. And I don't know how far we'll get today with communion and everything that's gone on, but we'll just take our time and see what we have before us. And to put it in context, I just want to read it in the context of of even our, our, our text last week. So begin in verse 13, Matthew chapter 16, and just follow along as I read down through verse 20. 
When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell or Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Five words in that text. I will build my church. Words of Christ. That's what the focus of this text is this morning. That's the life saver. That's the hope giver. That's the faith builder. Those five words. You may not understand this completely, but When God has called you to stand behind a a sacred desk and he's called you to proclaim the essential confession of the church that he is Christ, the Son of God. Not that he was a historical figure. He is Christ, the Lord of the church. Not that he was Jesus, a noble teacher, But he is Christ the King. He is our faithful intercessor. Uh, He is the only way to the Father. I don't stand before you weeping, mourning for the great I was. (laughs) I stand before you proclaiming to you the great I am. He is the only, the one and only Christ. He is essential to the proclamation of the church. The church's mission, its very reason for being, is to proclaim the essential confession, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, and the only hope of the world. I mean, that's the truth of all truths. And unfortunately, it's under unyielding attack in our post-Christian, post-modern culture that we live in today. If you believe in one God who has exclusively revealed himself through Jesus Christ, you've got problems. That's not politically correct. Hollywood has cast him aside as a misguided mystic. Washington, their spin masters constantly demote him to basically some lost prophet. The brainiacs at Harvard have reduced him to a historical footnote, footnote, and the liberal theologians have denied his deity and disclaimed his holy world, his holy word. Do you know that 40% of Americans believe all religions teach equally valid truth? 53% of Americans believe that all people pray to the same God. So you have to understand, in our land today, in the land in which we live, if you're to publicly invoke a higher power, 
Most of America will bow its collective head in reverence. But if you make the statement, Jesus Christ is Lord of all, and the only hope of the world, the only way to God, you better watch out. These statements of faith are not even fully embraced within the modern day church, which is just a tragedy. There seems to be some confusion in the rank and file of the American churches on this very crucial issue. Who is Jesus Christ? I pray that that confusion would not be here among us as a Bible-believing, Bible-teaching church. The church that Jesus said he would build is built on the confession of who he is, upon his deity, his lordship, his sovereignty. Or the church won't be built at all. That's our message, a message that really has been marginalized in our culture and even, you might say, soft-pedaled in churches today. I don't know if you remember after 9-11 happened, that same month on the 23rd, people filled Yankee Stadium. And the mayor of New York City called a special gathering together and it was on all the channels you could watch it as i did and it was called a prayer for america and i thought wow this should be interesting and the stage was cluttered with religious leaders representing sikhs hindus muslims jews roman catholics and greek orthodox one thing was missing evangelicals were not even given a place at the table It was a rather strange table setting anyway. Bette Midler, who rose to pop fame from the gay bathhousers here in San Francisco, served up the worship music. The best they could do was, you are the wind beneath my wings. (laughs) See, this was a time when America needed a preacher. The best they could do was trot out Oprah Winfrey, who boldly proclaimed that all who lost their lives on 9-11 were immediately added to heaven's spiritual roster as angels. The message was clear. We don't need Jesus. You just need to die a tragic or a noble death. And somehow it's all going to work out in the end. So I remember watching that prayer for America... I remember one individual, James Earl Jones, got up. And for a second I thought, wow, this is going to be great. And he said this, we have come to reaffirm our faith. I thought, well, that's pretty bold. Come on, let's, let's go for it. And I waited, thinking something else is coming, and it was. And then he said this, We have come to reaffirm our faith in human dignity. And I thought, how sad. How sad. Mohammed's spokesman was welcomed to the great stadium. New New agers were welcomed and celebrated. Celebrities crowded the place. They stood on the stage representing unity and diversity fused in grief over America's loss. They spoke in terms of peace and restraint and they spoke softly and tenderly and the mayor and the governor and the other politicians stood tall and political agendas were tabled at the funeral for America. 
They stood shoulder to shoulder, and the death and death triumphed in spite of their combined weight. Death triumphed in spite of their solidarity. Death triumphed, for no challenger to death could be found. No one could speak to death, and certainly not the God of their own making. I mean, what a twisted way of thinking. What a twisted irony in a way that one who conquered death was not welcomed at a funeral for America. What a dark revelation that the one who holds the keys of death and hell and the grave was himself locked out of America's sorrow. His name was not invoked. His comfort was not sought. His presence was not acknowledged. His grace was not requested. That was a time when we needed hope. But beloved, there is no hope without a Savior. We needed comfort, but there was no comfort unless the Comforter is come and welcomed. He may not be welcomed in our culture, but all you've got to do is look around and know that he is needed in our culture. And who is left to declare him if the church backs off its message, if the church coddles the message, the gospel of Christ? We are the only redeeming agency on the planet. And if we falter, if we fail, if we stumble, if we give our pulpits to anything less than the full gospel of Jesus Christ, how are we going to answer on the day of accounting? That day when we stand before God himself. See, we exist to exalt Jesus Christ and to declare him to the world as the one way, the only way to God. And definitely the only certain hope of life eternal. Well, Peter offered the essential confession of the church in our text this morning. And that's the heart of Matthew 16 when he says, I will build my church. Everything else in that passage amplifies that great statement. Well, the first thing I want to do this morning is I want to identify who is this builder. (laughs) Who is this? It's kind of obvious. It's Jesus speaking, I will build my church. I remember hearing John MacArthur interviewed one time and they were talking about the growth of his church and and the interviewer asked Pastor MacArthur, you know, you, you just must have an incredible desire to grow this church. And his answer just cut right to my heart because he, he looked right at the man and he says, I have no desire to grow the church. None. And I thought, well, you're a pastor of a church and you don't have a desire to grow that church? And what happened, he said, you know what? Jesus says in his word that he will build his church. And I don't want to give him any competition. And I thought, you know, that's a great point. What we're talking about here is Christ building his church. It's comforting to know that the building of the church doesn't depend on people, gimmicks, or programs. Aren't you glad about that? The Lord is the only builder. It's our joy as Christians to come alongside him and be used by him in that building process. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. 
Well, let's look at the context here in our, in our, uh, in our Bibles. We see in, in Matthew 16, I want you to understand clearly that the disciples at this point had great expectations for the Messiah. They were anticipating the Messiah to come and reign as king. And they, they wanted that with everything. And even the, the, the Jewish popu, population at the time didn't even recognize their Messiah. They thought that he was John or Elijah or one of the other prophets, Jeremiah. And besides that, the religious leaders of the day wanted to kill Christ. They hated him with a passion. So the expectations of the disciples for this conquering king were unfulfilled. And they were having some questions, some doubt, discouragement maybe. And then Christ goes on, we're going to find out in the coming, the verses after this, where he talks about coming after him, you have to deny yourself, you have to be willing to take up your cross, which is an instrument of death. Uh, Death would not only come for Christ, he announced, but also for his disciples. That would be a little disconcerting if you were following Christ. But in the spite of all this gloom, you might say the disciples confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. We've looked at that. Even though they were discouraged, even though they were going to be persecuted, they still came to that point in their lives of confessing. (coughs) And so he wanted to encourage them in that confession, and he gave them those five words, I will build my church. That's a promise from God. Well, first of all, I want us to look at the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church. There's a lot of different thoughts on what the foundation of the church is. And when you read here in verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What is he talking about? Is he talking about building the church on Peter? You have to understand for... For more than 1,500 years, more than that actually, the Roman Catholic Church has maintained that this passage teaches that the church was built on the person of Peter. That's what they teach. If you ask anybody who Peter was, what will they say? If you're Catholic, what do you say? He's the first pope. That's what they believe. And that's where this whole Catholic papacy begins and has descended ever since. And they believe in this, they call it apostolic succession. The Pope is considered to be the supreme and authoritative representative of Christ on earth. When a Pope speaks what they call ex-cathedral, he's speaking as if he was God. And whatever he says is to be taken as such. Can't be erroneous because it's God speaking. 
And he speaks with that divine authority, authority equal to the God of Scripture. That's why in the Catholic faith you have so many different practices that you don't find in your Bible. You won't find in your Bible where we're to pray to Mary or where we're to, you know, go to a priest for confession or do these other things that they say you have to do. Well, where did they get these things? The priest, the, the popes over the years basically said, okay, I'm going to make an ex-cathedral statement, and they would make a statement, and they would consider that on the equal of Scripture itself. And so this rock, they say, identifies the foundation upon which the church is built. There's different ideas. The first one is, is it Peter? And they point out that that Greek name Peter means rock or stone. And they teach that Peter's authority is passed down throughout the years. And they consider that to be as binding as what the Bible says. Well, the Bible doesn't say that. The the Bible clearly identifies Christ, not Peter, as the head of the church. If you look at Ephesians 5.23, it says that very clearly. In Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked this, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We're going to be getting to that. Now, don't you think that at that point, if it was obvious Peter was the first pope and Peter was the supreme leader of everybody, that their answer would have been, oh, Jesus would have said, oh, it's Peter. That's not what he said. Christ didn't reveal any kingdom primacy of Peter for Peter at all. Even the mother of James and John, you remember, in Matthew 20, 21, asked Christ to allow her two sons to sit next to him in his kingdom. Well, that shows us that there was no special treatment given to Peter. Even in his own epistle in 1 Peter 5, 1, it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who am also, I am also an elder. He doesn't make himself above anybody else. He knew that it was important for elders not to abuse their authority but to be clothed with humility. So we know it's not speaking of Peter here when he says this. Well, some people say that it's Peter's confession. It's not Peter the person, but it's the confession of Peter. Because he did say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you could translate it that way and be okay and be safe. Because I think it it is leading to that. But I think even more than that, I think we have to represent, understand that Peter was a representative of the apostles. So when he asked them the question, who do men say that I am? He was asking all the apostles because he asked his disciples, it says in chapter, in verse 13 of chapter 16. Peter was the one who answered But I really believe that Peter kind of had a a dialogue, a conversation with the other apostles. And when they came back and they said, well, we believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Because Peter was the spokesman for the, the 12 apostles throughout Scripture. We see that over and over and over again. He continually had a leading role among the apostles. It was the Lord who used his preaching to add over 5,000 people to the church in Acts 4. It was through Peter's testimony that a lame man was healed. 
but he wasn't above the rest of the 12 disciples. See, the church is not built, the church is built, rather, not on the office or rank of the apostles, but on their teaching. It tells us in Scripture that the church is built on the apostles' teaching and doctrine. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that they continued steadfastly in Peter's doctrine. No, they said in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. The church's foundation is God's revelation as given to us through the apostles. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, 11, it says, No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is who? Jesus Christ. And so in Ephesians 2.20, it says the apostles and prophets were chosen to be the foundation stones because they confess Christ to be the true foundation. So the foundation of the church isn't built on an individual. It's built on the apostles' doctrine, and Christ is the chief cornerstone, it says. Well, the second thing, it's not only the foundation of the church, but the assurance of the church. He says, I will build. This is Christ speaking. I will build. Christ will build his church because it's a divine promise. And you have to understand that Christ is God. Yeah, turn that off or on or whatever you got to do there. Thanks. Christ is God and God cannot lie. You have to understand here, when he says, I will build, this is emphasizing a continuation of action. Not necessarily the time of action. See, some people look at that and say, oh, he's going to be, in other words, it's future. No. It has the idea that he'll continue to build. He's already building his church. It's past, present, and future. God has been building his church since the foundation of the world. And you know, and we know, that we looked at last week how someone comes to faith in Christ. It's because of the divine method. It's not due to uh, a certain personality or an organization or anything like that or the way that you speak or, or anything like that. You don't have any power to convert to anyone. It's totally impossible to win a convert to the spiritual church of Jesus Christ apart from the sovereignty of God and his own word, and his own spirit. Human effort can't produce what God desires. Human effort can only produce human results. God alone can produce divine results. So Christ is certain to build his church wherever believers live in righteous obedience to God's word. That's his desire. So many times today, church leaders are trying to look for some trick of the trade or something to make a church grow. And that's simply, you can grab a bunch of people and have them attend a meeting if that's what you're interested in. But as far as actually adding people to the church of God, the church of Christ, only he can do that. God doesn't build his church through clever methodology, only through believers who are committed to righteousness. 
So if you obey God's word, you'll let Christ build the church his way. And he's the one that is the divine builder. In John 6.37, it says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. In Acts 2.47, it says, The Lord added to the church daily those who should be saved. In Acts 16.48, it says, When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. See, God drew to salvation the ones he predetermined to set his love on. That's a hard doctrine to understand, but that's what the word of God says. The epistles basically add more details as far as how the Lord does this through worship, through prayer, through teaching, through holiness, church discipline. They cover the qualifications of elders, of pastors, of deacons and deaconesses. And all those instructions point to a need for righteous living. And when we live righteously, that characterizes those whom the Lord is going to use to build His church. Why do we want to build the church of Christ? What's the goal? Ephesians 5 says that Christ is building the church to sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. That's in verses 26 and 27. In Ephesians 3.21, it says, Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. So why do we desire to see Christ build his church for his glory and his glory alone? Not just to have a big church. That's not what it's about. Thirdly, look at the intimacy of the church. The intimacy that we have within the church. Notice he says there, I will build whose church? My church. That's what Jesus says. I will build it, build my church my way. It shows Christ to be the owner, the architect, the builder of the church. And the reason that Christ cares so much about the church and desires to be intimate with it. In Acts 20, 28, it says that we are to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In Acts chapter 9, verse 4, when Saul was persecuting Christians and he was stopped on, on the road and Christ asked him this question, why are you persecuting me? Very intimate relationship between Christ and the church. When Christians are persecuted, it's almost like you're persecuting Christ himself. That's exactly what it is. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That's how intimately interwoven we are with our relationship with God through Christ. Even in the Old Testament, in Psalm and in Zechariah, there's a phrase used that we referred to as the pupil of, of God's eye, the apple of God's eye. That's really what that means, to be the pupil. So when someone pokes you in the eye, it's almost as if they're poking God in the eye. 
when they persecute Christians. God cares for his church because it was purchased, as we're going to celebrate here in a few moments, with Christ's own blood. Proverbs 18.24, it says that God draws near to his people and is like the friend who sticks closer than a brother. I mean, do you understand the intimacy that we have, not only with each other within the, Christ, within the church, but with Christ himself? It's an amazing reality that we as believers personally know Jesus Christ. We know God through Jesus Christ. And when you stop and think about it, that's pretty, pretty impressive. But what's even more impressive and more astounding to me anyway is the mere fact that he knows who I am. He knows my gifts. He knows my talents. He knows my faults. He knows my sins. He knows everything about me. That's how intimate our Savior is with us. Well, he gives the identity here of the church. He says, I will build not my organization, not my company, not my Mission society. He says, I will build my church. The Greek term there used is ekklesia. It means called out ones. And it's nothing spiritual about this term. It means simply to an assembly of people who are called out for a certain meeting. And it could be a very general gathering of people. In certain places in the scriptures, it's used just like that. It just means a congregation, an assembly, multitude of people gathered together. In Acts chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, it says, This is that Moses who said unto the children of Israel, Prophet, shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like me, like him you hear. And then it says this, This is he that was in the church in the wilderness. with the angel who spoke to him in Mount Sinai. It was just a gathering of people. In Acts 19, some, it says there in verse 32, some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. It's a gathering of people. Well, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says you have come out of Mount Zion in verse 22 and onto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable company of angels to the general assembly and church puts them all together of the firstborn who are written in heaven and to god and the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect the word there refers to the church as god's people but it doesn't always refer to the god's people just as in hebrews 12:23 church in matthew 16 refers to god's people that's what he's saying there in Matthew 16 when he points that out to us. Now, when you stop and you think of how God relates that to us, that God desires us to know what the church is. And unfortunately, the modern-day church has made the mistake of looking at it as a company or looking at it as an organization or looking at it as... It's, it's, it's none of those things. 
It's really an organism. It's a living thing. It's made up of living people. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about all those who have confessed Christ as Lord and Savior. They are part of the church. It's not talking about this church, Grace Bible Church. Church is bigger than that. It's, it's all those who profess Christ to be their Savior. So he kind of is clear on who he's talking about here. He's not making a general reference to the church. He's referring to those who confess the Lord Jesus Christ, as Peter did a couple verses before, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So he wants them to be clear on that. Well, look at what else he says here about the church. He also says that the gates of hell, or Hades, Sheol, the grave, basically, is what that word means. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates here are used in reference to something that holds people in, kind of like prison gates. See, we have a, a skewed idea of what spiritual warfare is all about. We have this idea that somehow the demons are, are attacking the church. And so when we read this text, sometimes people look at that and say, well, yeah, you know, we, we have to make sure that we uh, hold off the... That's not what this is referring to. This is referring to literally the church going into the gates of hell to rescue those who have been saved. That Greek word there where it says prevail, it means to conquer. Because if you stop and think about it, when's the last time you, you knew of an army that took gates with them into battle? See, the idea is that, that Satan and the, the hosts of hell are attacking the church. Well, that's not what this is referring to. You don't take gates with you. They're, they're defending their borders. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. As believers, we're called to roll up our sleeves and in the power of the Spirit break through the gates of hell and rescue, share the gospel with those who have yet to believe so that they can be saved. That's what we're called to do. According to Hebrews 2.14, it says, Satan has the power of death, so he tries to kill Christians in an attempt to destroy the church. But you know what? He's never going to prevail because God has raised up Christ, having loosed the pains of death, because it wasn't possible that he could be held by it, Acts 2.24 says. And because death could not hold Christ captive, the believer is also set free from death's bondage. Christ said in John 14, 19, because I live, you're going to live also. That's what we have in Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, O death, where is your sting? Grave, where is the victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the church is a victorious church. So when Christ makes that statement, here it's really a promise of resurrection. Death won't defeat Christ's program of building his church. He's going to build it in spite of that. 
Everyone who loves Christ leaves this world to enter into God's glorious world. Hebrews chapter 12 says, The general assembly and church of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven. Revelation 1.18, Christ said, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. See, Christ has already completed this battle over death and hell. Hebrews 2.14 says, He experienced death so that he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. So when we look at the church, we have to not only understand the foundation and the, the assurance and the intimacy that we have and the identity of what we're talking about, but also the victory. That we are victorious in Christ no matter what happens. And then here in verse 19, he also speaks of the keys of the kingdom. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. So he says, you know what? I'm going to build my church and I'm going to build it upon the apostles' doctrine and teaching and upon all those who basically, I'm going to use those who live righteous lives to build the church. And the gates of Hades is not even going to be able to withstand against the church because those who are going to be saved are going to be saved. And as we break down the gates of hell to to share the gospel with those who've yet to hear. And as they come to Christ, we're actually stealing them from the enemy. Then he says in verse 19, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now this is a text of scripture that has been so wildly interpreted by so many different individuals, it's hard even to grasp and and give you an understanding of what some people think this means. So let's just take it slowly. It's talking about the authority that, that Christ is giving, not just to Peter, not just the apostles, but to all those who follow Christ. Here Christ was giving the disciples the authority to approve, you might say. That's what that word bind means. It doesn't mean to tie something up. It means to approve it or to disapprove it. Christ spoke that same authority in John 20, 23. He says, whoever sins you remit, they are remitted or forgiven unto them. And whoever's uh, sins you retain, they are retained. Christ gave the entire church that authority when he said in in Matthew 18, 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What kind of authority is Christ speaking of here in Matthew 16? It wasn't just given to Peter and the apostles, but to every believer in Christ. And it's based upon the word of God. When someone comes to you and they say, you know what, I've just accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and I've committed my life to Him, I've repented of my sins, what do you say to them? You can say, praise God. Do you know that you're a child of God now? That your sins are forgiven? Why would you say that? Are you just making something up? No, because you go to God's Word, which we believe to have the authority, 
And we read that when we put our faith, our trust in the work of Christ, rather than trying to do it ourselves, or in a religion, we put our faith, our work, our, our trust in the work of Christ, then we're saved. We're, we're freed from the, the sin and the, the burden that we've been carrying. You say that based upon the authority of God's word. That's why within the church, we base everything upon the authority of God's word. We don't just run off and make stuff up. What kind of church would that be? God entrusted the word to his church so it might shine as the light in the world, Matthew 5 says. And when the church upholds the word of God, the Lord's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, according to Matthew 6, 9. See, the way the church is supposed to work, it's supposed to serve as a divine pattern for the lost of the world to see the glory of God. Unfortunately, today, we have so much stuff going on in the church, it's hard to see that. Along with that, there's a responsibility to tell the lost about sin, to tell the lost about righteousness and judgment and forgiveness in Christ. And by telling them what God's word says, they'll hear what heaven says. And we have that authority because we're basing it on the authority of God's word, not just on our own authority. The source of the church's authority is not the church itself. That's where, unfortunately, the Catholic faith has gone all wrong. They say, well, you know what? We believe this because this is what we believe. And who are you to say different? And when I first got saved out of the Catholic Church and I went back and I talked to the priest and I'd say, you know, I'm not finding real clear where we're supposed to pray to Mary. Well, that's church doctrine. Well, I don't find it in the Bible. Well, no, you, we're built on the Bible and church, the teachings of the church. Oh, okay. And I don't find in here where I have to go see a priest every couple of weeks for a confession. Can you help me? Well, that's more of the church doctrine that we believe. It's not really found in Scripture. We, we you know, and they kind of hem-haul around that and try to answer that. Well, I don't want to be in a church that's just making stuff up as they go. I want to be in a church that's based upon the truth of God's Word, if we believe it to be true. And that goes even for, you know, when we have to point out things that are right or wrong, forgiven or unforgiven. It's not based on our own authority. It's based upon the authority that we find in Scripture. See, sometimes people within the church say, oh, you know, you can't, you can't judge anybody. Well, yes, you can. You can make very clear judgments based on Scripture. When someone comes and they're doing something that's not scriptural, that's doing something that's forbidden in Scripture, it's the church's duty to address it. We don't need to worry about what kind of reaction we're going to get. We have to trust in the authority and the truthfulness of God's Word. Even though some reject Christ, they reject God's Word, the church cannot, should not ever compromise the truth. We have to uphold the standard of His Word. And that's the only way we'll bring glory, the glory that He deserves. So this whole binding and loosening, it's not talking about demons. It's not talking about, you know, all the charismatic 
issues that people bring into these couple verses. It's basically saying, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say what God's word says, and I know that that's what's said in heaven because God doesn't lie. He's the same God. Well, the last verse here is, is rather interesting. He says in verse 20, Then he commanded his disciples that, he should, that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute. I thought that's what he wanted. Well, you have to put yourself in this environment. And you have to understand the spiritual nature of the church. The church wasn't meant to be an organization set up with a king and they're going to overthrow the Roman government. See, that's what they're thinking. That's what the disciples are thinking. And that's what most of the religious people in Jesus' day are thinking. They're looking for the Messiah to come and to overthrow Rome and to set everything in order and then everything will be happy and you know, they'll just go skipping down the road together. Well, that's not what this was all about. And so he has to explain to them the spiritual nature of the church. And basically he's telling them, you know what? People aren't going to understand that I am the Christ. It's not time yet. At this point, if they went out there and started saying things like that, they would just incur their death quicker than what was needed. So he's building his church in this spiritual way not in a political or militaristic way. Even in the New Testament, we see where he told his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then upon receiving that promise of the Holy Spirit, he says in, in the Gospels, he says, in Jer- and then you need to go into Jerusalem, into Judea, and all parts, and Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. See, that's the day and age we live. We're supposed to go to the uttermost parts of the earth and share the gospel of Christ with those who've yet to hear. You have to understand that there was no church building back then. They didn't have what we have today. But he was building his church. According to his design, according to his ability... His perfect planning, uninterrupted supply. When you think of a builder, you think of construction guy. You think of something, somebody putting things together. That's what Jesus is doing. Board by board, nail by nail. Soul by soul, he's building his church. We need to understand that the way that that is done is through those who are living righteously. Some churches may grow numerically faster than others, but that doesn't mean that Christ is building his church there. Are they standing up for the truth? Are they compromising? What are they doing? What are they teaching? Is it built upon the apostles' doctrine, upon biblical teaching? See, if God Almighty has declared his intention to build his church and we're following Christ and Christ is the builder, aren't we supposed to be part of the team? God's not stopping. He's not slowing his pace. He's not changing his plan. He's not laying workers off. He's not bankrupt. He doesn't need a permit. And he's not about to quit. 
So who are we to walk off the job? Who are we to say, well, this isn't working this way, I'm just going to do it another way? Not one of us has the right to walk away from Christ if we're truly following Christ. If you've been called, then you soldier on. He's going to build his church. The Bible says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Some people think, well, boy, what's going to happen to the church after America falls off the chart? God will continue to build his church. God doesn't need America to build his church. I, I hope that this morning that we realize that we're engaged in a war. It's a spiritual war. And God has already equipped us for every good work. And God is calling us to be particularly stubborn, you might say, in this dark age in which we live, especially here in San Francisco. I mean, you look at our culture, it's going down the tubes quick. But you know what? The culture is not going to prevail against the church. I mean, you look at our country, it's kind of at an all-time low. The unfortunate thing is, is everybody's looking to the Republicans to solve the problem. Well, beloved, that's not the answer. That's not the answer. That's just part of the problem. You can take all the politicians and put them in one big lump. That's not where we need to look. We need to look to Christ. Unfortunately, the church's testimony has been sullied by compromise and scandal. But you know what? His blood has not lost the power to cleanse. His name has not lost the power to save. His word has not lost the power to conquer. And his covenant endures, and his church shall yet rise. And we will trample the gates of hell. And we will declare his inevitable glory. Because he will and is building his church. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, as we prepare our hearts for our communion time together, Lord, we ask that you would do a work in and through us in this community, in this dark part of the country. Lord, it's just a hard area to take the word of God and to be bold and and open, and yet it's needed so much. People need to hear the truth. They need to be freed from their sin, and only Christ can do that. And so, Lord, I pray that as we share the gospel message in and around this church, that it would affect change in the hearts and lives of your people, the people that you have, even before the foundation of the world, set your love upon to save them. But Lord, we need to be obedient to take this message out to a lost and dying world so that we could look within our ranks here and say, yes, you are building the church here too. But that will only happen where there is righteousness. That will only happen where there's a strong desire to do the things of God. And so Lord, I pray that you would cause us to ponder our own hearts Make sure that we are doing what we are doing with right motivation and with proper attitudes that you could use us to 
Continue to build your church here and through this community of believers. Father, we pray you'd prepare our hearts now for our communion time. Lord, we pray for anyone who is here who is yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray that you would woo them, that you would show them your love in a way that they could not resist it. That you would show them the sacrifice that you made on their behalf. The desire for them to come to you to turn from their sin and to acknowledge you as the Lord and Savior that you are. Father, we ask that you would do that even now. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll have a song.